Yes, it's Whataboust, a celebration of Reeves and Mortimer. Please welcome your hosts for this podcast, MJ Price and Paula Wiseman. Hello and welcome to Quadabobs, a podcast dedicated to the work and genius of Vic Reeves and Bob Mortimer. My name is Matt Price, previously of the long-running radio show The MJ Price Moments and founder of the Reeves and Mortimer Depository of Curious Stuff Facebook group. And my name is Paula Wiseman of the Divine Comedians podcast. Joining us today, we have someone who became friends with Jim Moyer at art school and went on to appear on stage with Jim and Bob from the pubs and clubs of South East London to the nationwide tours at the height of their fame. He went on to become a very funny comedian in his own right and is also a qualified pilot. Please enter the Novelty Island Padder, the human joke box, Dorian Crook. <laughs> hey, you find all that about me? <laughs> well, so we were saying there's very little about your line, Dorian. You're very, very secretive. I'm not. I don't know. I've got a website and everything. If I know, if I want to have that, what that? Website, Facebook, that's where you found it all out, I suppose. Years of research, Dorian. Years of research. Being the obsessive fan. Yeah. Uh, you used to get the uh, Fan Club magazine. I did indeed, yes. Did you very... go? No, it, um, it folded um, mid-90s. I've got a big pile of them. Oh, we have to do that to make it fit in the envelope. <laughs> and now we've started. <laughs> so let's start a little bit by chatting a bit about you dorian so you met jim at art college um were you always arty were you an arty kid no well uh maybe maybe sort of um how would you say at home but not at school um because i was interested in playing it was an interest i inherited from my father and um i sort of did the more sciencey stuff at school and so and i went became became an air traffic controller for a living mm. uh so that worked in that respect. But then I decided that I didn't want to do the same thing all my life, maybe. And I, the art thing was in the back of my head, having but never been able to do it at school because you couldn't combine the two. So I, um, when I left air traffic control for a while, I decided to go to art college before I got to, to you know, comfortable in a, what, a nice regular job and do it while I was in my you know, early 20s. So I finally, I picked the wrong time of the year. The academic year, so I could only do a sort of part-time... I was in the middle of the academic year, so I was signing on, as everyone was in the NACs, I believe, and uh, and so you could do two days a week on a part-time course to get you ready for applying. Right. That's where I met Jim. Because Jim was on a part-time course as well, was he? Yes. Yeah, right, okay. It's hard though, isn't it, to go from air traffic controlling into art. Was it quite an yeah. easy... Was it quite easy to get into... You know, they usually look for all these different things to, to get into... Air traffic control or art? Art, I suppose. For me, it was more difficult. No, well, yeah, I, can, I thought that's what you meant, but actually, for me, it was the reverse. I knew quite a lot about aeroplanes and air traffic control because I was a plane spotter and my dad was a pilot. So that was relatively easy to get into. Um, but art, well, I knew nothing of. So I was a bit of an outsider. Um, you know, I didn't have any background in it, or, you know, I didn't have many friends or parent or family or anything background. So, you know, I, um, it was actually probably to get into is probably more difficult for me than what you might expect would be the other way around. 
But um, yeah, obviously Jim has gone on, especially recently with the Painting Bird series, um, yeah. to become very well known as an artist in his own right, away from the comedy. D- did he show promise at the time? Could you see that he was going to go on to big yes. things? Yes. Uh, well, I don't know if I saw big things, but I um, I found him very um, inspirational. You know, at the time, I've always said this, to, it sounds like the sort of thing you only say, people only say after somebody's died, doesn't it? But I always say this because I suppose not everyone knows that he did it beforehand. And, you know, there's a thing of sort of people who get famous for music and that go and doing art on the side, and people are slightly suspicious of it. But he was very good. And um, I remember taking him for an in- to an interview that he had at, uh, I think, I'm not sure it was Goldsmiths or Camberwell, I can't remember now. I think we had to go to Camberwell. We lived in South London. I took him in my Hillman Minx with his paintings in the back. And some of them fell out in Peckham High Street. But we recovered we recovered them and he went to the interview and I seem to remember them saying they, they and they didn't I seem to remember them saying that he already knew what he was doing and you know, therefore they didn't really want to, didn't take him as an a student because he was quite accomplished and had his own right. thing going on, you know. It was too good. <laughs> well, maybe it looks like it looks like it, yeah. So um he carried he worked in an art gallery for a while, he carried on painting and stuff. But yeah. I remember when I was at college, I spent quite a lot of time with him and another friend of ours, John Irvin, who you may be aware of, who, who worked a lot on the tours and, and, and the early shows. And we used to do some little painting or, or drawing and photography projects together as well as the curriculum. And they were probably as influential as anything that happened in the college in the early days, certainly. Yeah. Did you think your career was going going to be in art or were you... I think a short hobby? period. A short period, I fancied myself as that, you know, painter in a garret type thing um but um i just i very veered away from that because i realized i couldn't paint and so i went into uh, making video sort of uh avant-garde videos and stuff like that you know like you do <laughs> yeah <laughs> yes yeah, so, i mean so what was your discipline in when you were doing the course um oh uh, film and video right 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 yes but it was on an art course rather than a film uh filmmaking course so um yeah, it wasn't very technical. It was more, um, it was approached in a fine art sense. Yeah. Mm. The sort of video that no one wants to look at, I think. <laughs> <laughs> was Fred Elwood at the art school as well? He wasn't at that art school, but he, he, he had been associated with the art world. And I know he worked in an art, art college, I think. I'm not sure what, whether he'd done art training. I'm sure he must have done, but he was quite creative as well. Yeah. Um, so that was the group. The nucleus for the original Big Nice Out live shows yourself and obviously Jim and Fred and John and the, yeah. Jack Dent as well. Uh, all the time. Still, he wasn't around at the very beginning. I, don't, I mean, he was around, but he wasn't in London. He was still in the north. Right. So um, he came out a bit later. And I'm not even sure. I was. I was. I was only sort of vaguely involved at the very beginning. It was, I mean, I think it was a bit quite a surprise to me when Jim um, announced he was doing this. But I went along. So very quickly, sort of became. Um, I can't remember was their choice or whether I had enabled myself in. I can't remember quite how, but um, there was a need for somebody to put a mask on or go on stage and do something silly, um, which I was quite up for doing, even though I had no um, experience of it before. And um, I, my, and I, I'd had no background in that, and I found I rather enjoyed it. So um, I think soon after that, I started to think that it would be more fun to be, if you like, metaphorically at least speaking, in front of the camera rather than behind it. So. Mm. Uh, I just wondered like, how much input were you, was uh, Jim kind of, did he kind of give you his ideas and then sort of that's how it played out or did you have any input into into what you were doing? Um, well, I mean, I was I was only a very minor character. Mm. Um, 
So at that well, at that stage, well, ever ever really, but certainly at that stage, um, they put he put the show together, and um, occasionally I'd be I think I was the only one with a car, so I would drive some of the props to the to the venue, and um, and they would go, why don't you put this on and maybe do that, um, yeah. So I wasn't sort of I wasn't sitting. I don't think I was there. I, him and John probably did more sort of preparation because they lived together, and uh, he came up with the the shows as I recall, and. Um, Possibly, I think possibly the way it happened was something like this. Not 100% accurate, probably, but uh, they would probably need someone to, to, you know, come on whilst he was getting changed or uh, or when there was a gap. And I said, oh, and maybe you could put this mask on and come on as some. Um, I remember once going on with my, in the very early days, when it was in a bar in uh, in Deptford, the first place it was before it was at the Goldsmiths, I think. It was up Winston's. Yeah, Winston's, yeah. yeah. And I went, go, went on stage as was my girlfriend at the time as um, as Peters and Lee, who were a 70s uh, easy listening duo that had met some success on uh, Opportunity Knocks or a similar sort of program. Welcome home. A like friend's got talent type thing, yeah. Um, <laughs> blind singer and his uh, blonde lady companion. So I had some sunglasses, but they didn't seem dark enough. So I put, um, put black. Now he had very dark glasses because he was blind. Yeah. Mr. Peters, or was he Lee? Good question. He had the very those very dark glasses, you know, more dark than your average sunglasses. So I thought my sunglasses weren't really dark enough, so I put black paper behind them. Of course, I couldn't see anything. And <laughs> but we sang. Um, uh, I don't think we actually sang one of their songs. We might have sung. I don't think we had one of their songs available, so we might have done an Abba song instead. And I'm very professional, as you can see. Um, <laughs> Uh, again, I can't quite remember what you couldn't see. I think that was their idea rather than mine. And then um, a couple of other little bits where I would come on and, you know, hand something to somebody. Mm. And then, yes. And then the one that you probably know better is the character that I've had, again, only for about 30 seconds on each show, remember, um, called the Toff, who was um, a sort of, again, I can't quite remember. I think we might have come up with it together somehow. Uh, just a sort of slight, like a, uh, a, a a posh aristocrat with a, a ruddy face and a like for the, a, and a taste for drink, who came on and, and mumbled a couple of bad jokes. Um, so uh, and was just caused led to the uh... my little Matt was my Matt was my big big break big break <laughs> in um in in terms of the big night out live show. Um, of course, the Toff had a catchphrase as well, didn't he, Dory? Yeah, well, well it, was, it wasn't no. a catchphrase. <laughs> <laughs> they, they came on after I did it once. It, the whole, I think the whole idea was that it was something to fill in while they got changed between doing something and then coming back as themselves. I think um, Bob had joined joined by this stage. Right. When I say they, whereas when it was at Winston's and the early time at um, uh, uh, the Goldsworth, it was just Jim. Uh, but then Bob joined in. So I think by that time that Bob had joined, so they might have been, say, the living carpets or something like that. Then they'd go off and change into their normal gear, and I would come on and do a couple of gags as a toff, and then they would come rushing on and they would shout, am I allowed to say a swear word? You can say whatever you like, Don. Yeah, disappointed with the say a fuck off, Tom. And um, <laughs> the audience joined in. And, and that, became, well, that became a catchphrase because there was a lot of call and response. Mm, yeah, going no. So the catchphrases were quite a big thing of it. Or not not catchphrases so much in the normal sense of a comedian's catchphrase. Yeah. Interaction. Have to learn. You call them. Yeah. <laughs> that could be only club catchphrases anymore. I know. Anyway, that, that it was more of a quorum of an audience response. 
Yeah, they love the audience interaction. I didn't really mind. I never found it, um, you know, <laughs> I didn't, it didn't bother me because I was thinking to me, you know, it was a, it was like, you know, like when you get a sort of silly nickname, it was almost like a mark of respect. <laughs> I had status. Yes. <laughs> Did anyone ever shout at you in the street, though? That's the, the worry. No. Uh, no, because it didn't, it didn't go into the TV series. No. The, no. I still, you know, the, the show was about two and a half hours long at the Albany Empire by then. Yeah. And, um, when the TV people started arriving and then it eventually got its well-deserved um, TV series, then um, you have to com move a two-and-a-half-hour show down to the 25 minutes or so. Mm. Um, yeah. So a lot of things had to go. It wasn't, to be honest, it wasn't a very important, it wasn't an integral <laughs> part of the show. And you don't have to do, when you're filming, you don't have to have someone come on while you get changed. You can just stop recording. Yeah, and yeah. You know, so the catchphrase wasn't suitable for um, uh, TV at that time. Um and you know, again, he was. I mean, I don't. You know, it wasn't. It wasn't that important a part of the show from that point of view. I'm sure. So, um, it. Um, no, but we're talking about it now, Dorian. Do you know what I mean? It's. In the business, occasionally, it's only ever been shouted to me once, but that was like you know, in in an in in circles, if you like, not in the street. <laughs> Can you remember when Bob joined? Um. Well, uh, I, no, I can't give you the date. No. <laughs> Half a safe on the chip. Uh, yes, uh, it sounds like a police interview now, doesn't it? <laughs> Where were you on the night of the night? Where were you on the night of 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 the night he was taken down to the show by a friend of an old friend from the north who appeared from you know in the pub that he go he went to regularly who told him about it uh, an enthusiast of the show who told Bobby Mass to see this and so Bob went down I think I might not even I know I may not have even been there the first time so I may just be re repeating what I've read or heard which is a bit useless because that's not what I'm here for is it but anyway um, <laughs> my memory is that he was introduced to it and then he he turned up and got on well with Jim, and um, one way or another, they got chatting, and he got um, roped in, and and more. So um, yeah, so I mean, did the did I, the dynamic change at all when when Bob got involved? Well, I suppose you know between the yeah, the group uh, that the group that was there initially. Oh, um, it's difficult to say, isn't it? Because I, hmm. I was, I mean, I wasn't part of the creative team really. Yeah, and you know, I wasn't there at sort of well any sort of regular meetings about what to do. I'm not sure it was that. Um, uh, so I think Jim did it at home mainly. I imagine John Irvin had quite a lot of input when he was doing it on his own because they shared a flat and a similar sense of humour. And John Irvin used to appear occasionally, I think. And um, uh, so I suppose it must have done, but I don't remember um, I don't remember it um, sort of um, feeling significant in terms of... I mean, it was very much... For me, it was a social thing, really, at that point. I had never yeah. had aspirations to go on stage. I was mm. pleased that I'd become involved, and it was fun. And uh, and you know, some shows I would just be a, a, a punter, you know, watching. Um, yeah. By the Goldsmiths days, I think I only went on stage once, doing maybe something. Maybe I might have been one of the. I don't know if I was. Yeah, I might have gone on and done something, but it was only really when it got to the Albany I seemed to remember that I did the top, and I was a regular. But even then, I wasn't a necessary regular because I was away. I remember being away for a couple of weeks in Canada and um, missing it a bit. Yeah. Um, I think I was talking to my old 
my girlfriend at the time on the phone and saying, oh, can you ring him and say, ask him if I can do the one when I come back? You know, I was kind of making sure I kept my foot in, if you like, rather than being an essential part. Yeah. And of course, Fred became Les yeah. during this period as well. Yeah. Did that character evolve or was he um, sort of given to to Fred? Well, um, yeah, I think, it, you know, like always, you know, they come on once and um, I suppose I'm guessing here again, because I'm reading Jim's mind from 35 years ago. Um, I suppose some things work and um, some people are good to work with or some people enjoy it. And um, and if it works, it obviously that worked with the audience. Uh, that must have worked well. And um, it became an, you know, a regular thing. Mm. I think he was, I think he was had a, he was more hovering around in the background and used to do, as you know, of course he was mute. So yeah, um, yeah. Um, I think he could hover around in the background a bit and then he, I did rather than come on and do something like, because he didn't speak. So I, then eventually they gave him, I think a little bit where he would come on and there would be a, like a, almost like a silent movie bit where he would set up a table for an imaginary dinner party or something. And uh, I don't think I've ever heard his voice. No, he wouldn't have in, in his professional role, no. no. <laughs> Maybe if you interview him, you might. Yeah. He's on the list. Fingers yeah. crossed. <laughs> yeah. Did uh, Charlie Hickson and Paul Whitehouse sort of appear? Was that yeah. Albany Empire time? They did. I remember them appearing at some point, both, you know, just appearing at the play, at the venue and, and appearing on stage. Uh, I remember a character, one of them did, and I can't remember which one, called... It was uh, one of the big sort of um one of the things that felt significant at the time in sort of comedy history was that the fact that they were that jim and vic vic jim and bob were um were, were you know in any way political comedians mm. that seemed to be the main thing going on at the time and there was always a sort of underlying uh feel that you know that's not what what's going on and i seem to remember charlie or paul but i can't quite remember which did a character called johnny vitriol who was a sort of uh ranting you know anti-Thatcher type comedian as as was very popular in the late 80s early 90s yeah uh, this, was, this was all around the turn of the decade I think almost exactly 1990-ish I'm guessing maybe 89 to 90 yeah yeah because I've spoken to Charlie in the past I think Charlie came first and he was just so impressed by what he saw he then told Paul he had to come along and and get involved so yes it's nice seeing all these different lines <laughs> interjecting yeah that, it was always exciting going down there I seem to remember it was on a Sunday the one at the Albany quite from like a long time mm. and um, after a while it sort of became a, a sort of quite a fun game even if I wasn't performing to sort of see which either not so much c- celebrities as or TV people TV production people that were turning up you know or in one case Jonathan Ross who was a bit of yeah. he was he had a company and he was also famous um I think we all went for a curry beforehand, and then, and he got some curry on his tie. Don't know why I remember that, but he, he was always quite well dressed, I suppose. And it's yeah, yeah. Unusual to see, especially as they all live. TV people see we we lived in this odd, slightly odd corner of South East London. I say odd because it was a bit unconnected in those days, transport wise. So it right. felt a bit, um, it felt a bit more distant from London than perhaps it would do nowadays. And mm. and they all lived in. More, slightly more affluent places like Hampstead and Islington. Mm. It was quite. It felt quite funny to see the likes of them finding their way, negotiating their way around South East London, and you know, then what's his name, Michael Grade, and uh, was the BBC man, and who was the Channel yeah. Four? I can't remember. But one week he would be the, the head of 
you know, commissioning man or the head of comedy or whatever they're called, the man, from, the big man from the Channel Four would be there. Mm. So we sort of knew who they were roughly. And then next week in the BBC, man and Jonathan Ross and and uh, yeah, Channel Four was still very new then, wasn't it? He had only been around for a couple of years. Uh, probably, I don't remember, but I guess you must be right. Yeah, I think it was eighty-two. I think was started, wasn't it? Was it that far back? Yeah, no, I, no, I think it started in the mid eighties. Yeah, I, I had in my mind eighty-seven. I don't know where, no, no. where that came from. <laughs> I will get too geeky. But it was the, it was no, the first ever comic strip was on the first night, and that was eighty-two. Right. Yeah, but yeah. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> Do you remember the tram. So, like talking about the uh, the the early big night out days. So, so what memories do you have of those initial days? Was it quite shambolic, or was it like organised chaos? Um, how do you hello? How would you describe? Well, um, I didn't. I suppose I didn't really have any. Um, I didn't have any because I hadn't come from any show business. Uh, yeah, yeah. That background, I didn't really have anything to compare it with. But um, it was pleasantly. Um, I mean, no, no, it was. It was professional, but in a sense that it was good. Mm. important thing. Um, it didn't sort of um conform to uh, the normal sort of routine of uh you know you, you see a, sh- a show but i probably haven't seen that many uh ensemble comedy shows you yeah. know maybe i don't know um well, as you say that time it was probably about stand-up yeah and yeah, that time it was probably about stand-up quite different from that yeah and i don't think i'd seen uh you know things like the league of gentlemen and stuff like that which is you know a group of people i hadn't hadn't started by then i don't remember having much to compare it with um but like I say, it was sort of, um, it was just always fun for me because um, these were people I hung out with socially anyway. Mm. Um, and it was just fun to be part of what they were doing, you know. And even if I wasn't um, performing that night, maybe the tough wasn't needed or something, and I went along, it was always a good atmosphere. It was always a good night out. Yeah. Um, that was a big star in your what, diary, almost. Um, That's the thing. You can never know at the time what something is going to become. Do you know what I mean? It's just a load of mates just pissing about in a in a in a room no, and I think if I couldn't oh. make it if I couldn't make it for some reason if I couldn't make it even if it was because I was on holiday or something I was a little bit sad or if I couldn't go yeah. maybe I was work because I, I think I'd start I'd gone back to working in air traffic control mm. by then. so my um occasionally I'd have to work very early in the morning it might not have been a good idea to go out that night or something yeah. you know not worrying yeah. you're in charge or of flight, be flight landing. you know so there was some there was some times when I couldn't make it um, and I used to feel, oh, what happened last night? What was it like? Oh, you know, it was that, you know, what people now call you in the moment, you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Can you remember the uh, the move to TV? Yeah, I excitement around in that. Well, I remember the sort of build-up to it with TV people coming, so it kind of felt it a bit inevitable. So it wasn't mm, a huge, a sudden shock. Yeah. Um, but, you know. Yeah, did you, did you have to change? Was there much... That changed, obviously, you know, from doing something in a stage show that was, you know, near two hour, two hours long, and then having to condense it into what we. Yeah, I don't think I was actually involved in that. Uh, first, I don't think I, was, I don't think I was on stage at all for the first uh, couple of first series of the living life. Um, like I say, the top character couldn't really fit into no. that, and so um, I, I think at that point I, I was to the back seat. Um, and I just enjoyed going down to the recordings again. Yeah, that that replaced the um, the the Albany as the sort of the our big night out uh, in in our own terms, not to yeah. call that, um, you know. And so we'd always have tickets, and we'd go over to um, you know that was on a Friday, I seem to remember. So that that wore us. I think it was a Friday or a Saturday. It was over in uh, Wandsworth. But, mm. um, I forgot the name of the studio. Again, a bit of a trek from where we live, but. It was always, you know, a train or taxis over there. 
and um, I think perhaps privileged status of the green green room because of my background with them. Uh, yeah. But no, but your, your name is synonymous with you know with Jim and Bob now. You know, when people talk about the early days, you know, your name is always your name is always mentioned, which is always it's always a good thing. Well, nice, <laughs> nice to know. It's nice to know. Yeah. I I think I did see there was a documentary about them, wasn't there? Um, on Panorama, not Panorama. Omnibus. What's that program that maybe the there's Omnibus or Arena? One of those was. Yeah. What's the one? one of those, Malvin Bragg. Oh, South Bank Show. It might have been that. You, you probably know because you're. I think it was Alan, I think it was Alan Yentob. I think it might have been an Omnibus. Yeah. And I know they had an interview with um. Jonathan Ross and Alan Mark, who were the two men behind Channel X, mm. yeah, produced it. And I was—I think there was an interview with them. And there's—I I remember being flattered that I was mentioned in that briefly um, when they're they were being interviewed in the back of a limo or a taxi or something. And I went, "Oh, cool! Yeah. <laughs> what happened to Puff? Yeah, you know." <laughs> <laughs> so, um... <laughs> He's landing planes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and was to thirty until recently. I did that pretty much full time for thirty years. So. Uh... Well, I say full time, but when I wasn't doing that, I was doing. Eventually, did stand up on my own, as you as you mentioned. But uh, yes, okay, yeah. But midnight out, it just seemed to click. It clicked with a, you know a generation. Let's call it a generation of people. Yeah. It was it was around that time that comedy was it was kind of becoming the new rock and roll, wasn't it? It was that big. phrase was coined by a, a clever journalist. Um, a couple of years later, Arena's show by um Newman and Badil. Yes, so, yeah, they yeah. a little bit later than. Than them, but they were always a bit. But it is relevant, even if it wasn't used then, I suppose, because they were quite some. Jim, in particular, was they were quite pop starish in their in their well, literally a pop star. But yeah. they they were um, it was uh, I think because they had a lot of pop references in their show, which most comedians didn't, uh, and that let the audience know that they knew what they were talking about, I suppose, and perhaps they got fans who were, I don't know, indie music fans or whatever, what have you, that maybe wouldn't otherwise have got into comedy so if someone said oh you've got to see this he's got a puppet that's meant to be morrissey you know i can imagine somebody who maybe not uh who might have been a real music fan who might not have been into comedy for example getting lured in by that um and i think music journalists love them as much as tv people mm. they made the cover of the enemy yeah, several yeah. times so yeah. that obviously little music fans in as well uh, and of course that led to the the big night out tours which you yeah. brought yourself back onto stage Yes, because um, as I was going to say, I don't think I was actually, in, I wasn't actually uh, actively involved um, in those first TV series. No. But they did kindly invite me to join them on the tour, so then I was back in, so to speak. Well, not the first one. They didn't need me on the first one, but I, they said, oh, do you want to come along? It might be fun. So I came along anyway, and they, I you know, picked, jumped on the tour bus outside of my flat in uh, King's Cross, <laughs> way up the A1. And... Um, Went to do this was the first tour, which was sort of university, um, nineteen perhaps nineteen ninety, um, universities mainly, mm. and I found that I was very excited just being you know being being part of the bus really with them. I mean, not in a fan kind of way because I was already friends with them. It was nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was nice that they um, were comfortable enough to let me do join in, um, you know, rather than just going off and that. So I was always there's an, there was always a, there's always been a certain and loyalty oh definitely uh, you know outside of the showbiz professionalism i've always been rather grateful for so yeah was there a different type of audience now they were on tv well of course yeah and i remember actually no maybe i've got it wrong about getting on the bus because i seem to remember i didn't go on the bus with them that tour at first to start with i think i went and joined them in leeds and they'd already done a week and i think i got the train to leeds and i turned up on my own i remember this because i remember 
getting my hotel and then I walked to the venue and then I saw the queue outside and that was quite um, an eye-opener for me because I had you know that sort of visual confirmation of how yeah. big they were. Yeah. Not only was there a queue but there was people dressed as Les yeah. with um, chives in their pocket. <laughs> and I thought, well, you know, they really got fans, you know. <laughs> yeah, and then I think we they, I joined them for the northern part of the tour and um, actually in the end I did do some bits because there was... Was it Novelty Island or something? You mentioned the paddock. I think the, there was another chap who was a friend of Simon Day's who'd gone along and he did something in it and he wasn't. And in the end, they still you can do it if you want. And I, so I ended up actually sort of performing a bit on that tour and then in a sort of informal way. Did you operate, am I right in saying you operated Greg Mitchell, the Labrador as well? Or not? Yes, later on. Well, look, yeah. he looked around at he well, the second tour. Around, obviously, because dogs lived for a long time but uh, he wasn't a showbiz dog at that point he was probably being construct being imagined in a prop room well you probably know he didn't exist of course because he's not real but um, <laughs> yes, he's real sorry you were asking about um did i ever get caught anything anybody call out toff in the street and i say no because it wasn't on tv so nobody knew nobody and not enough people knew it and equally nobody shouted out greg Mitchell, because um, I wasn't seen on the TV thing when I did. You rented the desk. Oh, I did meet someone at a party, no, at an event a few years ago, and they somehow it came up that I'd worked with Nick and Bob, and they were, oh, yeah, I'm a big fan of him. And he went, oh, what did you do? I said, oh, I operated the dog. They went, the dog, Greg Mitchell. They went, oh, can you sign an autograph? First time I asked to sign an autograph. Well, I had to sign it as Greg Mitchell. As Greg Mitchell. Well, I didn't know whether it was a paw print or... <laughs> That's mad. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but I wasn't the voice of Greg Mitchell. That was no. I, I operated him. Uh, that was all my main, my main job on the. Well, I did a bit in the, in the first half on the. So the next tour in '91, I think I was a a proper employed part of the um, the gang, you know. And 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 I did something at the beginning, which was mainly a bit of oh, uh, what you mentioned, off was the island, the paddock, and then there's an interval, and then in the second half. Before the curtains came up again, I have had to go and sit behind the crouch, behind the desk, for about 20 minutes doing nothing whilst the rest of the show went on. Um, and, um, and at some point, well, perhaps longer, actually, half an hour maybe, oh because I was only there to operate Greg <laughs> at the end of the second half. So uh, lest there be any um, suggestion of glamour <laughs> in the world of Shepherdbiz, I can assure you that sitting underneath, um, sitting underneath Jim's arse, uh, <laughs> about 40 minutes with nothing to do apart from hope that he hadn't had too much unpleasant food the night before <laughs> and that they hadn't left me anything too unpleasant as a magazine to read uh, was um, yeah I mean I was happy I, I enjoy it I, I still look back on it with very happy memories but um, yeah, not that particular moment but you know the whole thing and you know actually it was great because I didn't really have the other thing of course is I didn't really have a huge amount of responsibility because uh, unlike them, who, or maybe somebody was doing like a warm up, like a comedian doing a warm up. Yeah. Um, I didn't really have a huge responsibility because I had mainly mute parts. Um, and I just had to, you know, as the old actors say, you know, come on at the right time and not knock anything over. <laughs> if, um, and even if I had knocked something over, probably nobody would have minded. Um, you know, I had to go, come on in Novelty Island, and I think I was tied up with some chains. Um, and, um, Yes, there's footage of you on the. Um, I think it's the late. I think it's the Smeller Reason Autumn at all. 
and you're in the paddock. I think you have a cardboard box on your head, and you're an escapologist in some chains. Oh, that's yeah, from my head, I had a load of chains around me. Yeah, my head. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> and John Irvin played did the music. It was some sort of uh, tense, fanatic music. I mean, he could as I was. <laughs> I it's very far. And he, um, for his own amusement, no doubt, uh, sort of stretched us out by a couple of bars every night. <laughs> the first time, yeah, I only had to spend like five seconds um, escaping, and then, and then he'd add another bar or two <laughs> music. So by after 30 nights, I was there for about a minute or so. <laughs> not really doing anything on stage. Um, it is very funny. <laughs> yeah. So that's all would have been also Simon Day. Um, he was Mike Otto, tour, yeah. Mike yeah. Wattam, yeah. Uh, yeah, he, I have a feeling that the one that Simon Day was on was one one and one tour, and then perhaps if you included the university one, the third one was the one with Mike Wattam. Yeah. I, did, I didn't, I only sort of informally joined the university one, and I did the first big um, sort of theatrical, big theatres tour, and the second one, and uh, it took a bit of took a bit of organising because I was working then. I managed to get the time off, um, and therefore, uh, and Lord, you know, there was a couple of days when it was there was no shows, and I was able to go back. But I managed to, I managed to work it out without having to lie to anyone. Quite good because actually, I have to say, it's not not very interesting for your listeners, but you know, the people I worked for were actually, I didn't have to pretend. You know, like you hear of people who have a, a proper job. Um, to get into music or showbiz in some way and have to sort of make various excuses about dying grandmothers and stuff to skive off. And I managed, I didn't, I didn't go down that route. I always, I told them what I was doing and, um, well, I didn't have to really worry at that point because I, I basically used all my whole leg for that tour in 94. So we must have done a tour in 94, I think in the middle, early part of 94, which yeah. would be one that Mike was on probably. Yeah. That'd be the same thing. That's because it was a bit of, that didn't take a bit of organizing to, to at one point, I wasn't sure if I could do it, and I was a bit worried about that because I, mm. you know, I, I didn't want to be not involved. And mm. um, but I managed to work it out, and then I got offered around about soon after um, my own show in Edinburgh. And um, then I was beginning to run out of holiday, so <laughs> I, had to do a of, I did have to do a bit of negotiation, but then I told them up front what was happening, and I had a quite a sympathetic boss, and I had somebody who was spare that was to retire and he didn't ret- he basically didn't retire for a couple of weeks longer because so i'd go to edinburgh because i'd used all my holiday guides on the vic and bob so i had a very busy year yeah <laughs> just before that the, the smelleries and mortimer first series started you, you're in a couple of roles background parts in that first series yeah our third frenchman i seem to remember <laughs> <laughs> i went up to somewhere near york i seem to remember and um they had the director called um Mr. Birkin, I can't remember his first John name. John Birkin. Yes. Mm. Presumably, Romy Birkin. Is... <laughs> <laughs> mate, I don't know if it's named after him. Maybe. You know, well, he'll be onto something. I don't know. But you know him, he's nowhere, nowhere like him in his, in his manner, but <laughs> like, people like to grab names, don't they? Yes. Stuff. Yeah. They were so... good at, they weren't that just on an aside there, they were very good at, Jim had this thing of choosing names for people that were hilarious, but he didn't want to have comedy names. So he would always give people names, even like the puppets and characters were absurd. He would give them quite normal names. There was a puppet on um, on the, the uh, Albany shows. I can't remember if he went into TV called Alan Davidson, the Cheeky Fox. And he was named after my flatmate, <laughs> um, who they also knew vaguely from the Northeast school days or 
you know, teenage years. Yeah. And um it so it, and, and there was another one called John uh no, anyway, the the fox was funny in itself, but he uh it was just a manky old puppet that they found in the market. <laughs> but he was called Alan Davidson, the cheeky fox. Rather than being called, you know, some silly name. I think it made it better. Yeah, but you don't get Labrador's or Greg Mitchell. Well, no, exactly. Usually, so that's as great, mate. Oh, can I tell you the other interesting story about Greg Mitchell? Mm. Is that um, when it went to TV? No, sorry, I, I think that sorry after it, you know, it was a certain second or third series of TV when the dog was in the TV series. Mm. They originally was a production company uh, wanted a. Well, they, they chose a professional puppeteer to uh, operate the dog. Um, and um, I think my memory is, this again, this is not 100% accurate because it's my memory of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, um, that they didn't feel that, that... They felt it was too professional, I think, because there was something about what they did that, that there was a... They enjoyed, and I think the audience did also, they did enjoy a little bit of um, things being slightly not quite right, not... Mm. I wouldn't say I'm professional because that sounds wrong, but you know the things being a little bit slightly off, out, and circled the dog. You know, like the the idea that the dog should maybe maybe you should see the 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 operator's hand occasionally and know that it's and you know a puppeteer obviously she's professional. He wants to get everything right, and yeah, I seem to remember they didn't it didn't quite feel right for them. So they said, and I seem to remember I was penciled in or slated, as I believe they say in the showbiz world. To play a part in one of the smell of, uh, I think I was going to be Greg, um, 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 an, a, a, a visual part, which which is what um, uh, Cliff Mitchell, no, not Cliff Mitchell, Frank Boff. <laughs> he was a nationwide presenter. Yeah. And uh, they said, Dorian, we can't have that puppeteer. we got to have you. You know how to do the dog properly. And, you know, you mm. hand up and, I mean, I don't know what I was doing, but <laughs> apparently they liked it. So I did the dog. The way they used to do it, and they preferred that than having the puppeteer. Yeah, but it meant I lost the job on you know being uh, vi- visible as um, Frank Boff. So I didn't really get much visibility on in the TV series except when I was third Frenchman, <laughs> <laughs> which apparently yeah. So I was down back back behind the desk basically. Yeah, I'm not complaining. No. And around that time, I said earlier, I've got the uh, the fan club newsletters, and there's a lot of talk just after the smell of there being a series of 10-minute shorts, I think, with yourself uh, and with Jim and Bob called Dot on the Landscape. Oh, yeah. Oh, you haven't done your research. Which never came to fruition, but can you remember I do. that was going to be? I do remember what it was going to be, yes. And I, uh, I always think of it as a... Um, confirmation of the fact that the famous phrase is basically seen as a free lunch and not being true because the one thing I got out of that was the free lunch. Unfortunately, nothing else. But um, it was a... They came out... Well, what happened was that in the interim between various series that having... I, I haven't got a taste of being on stage mm. but not actually being needed, um, understandably... I um I sort of missed it slightly, and I remember going to um I remember going up to Edinburgh. They did a show uh, during one of the Edinburgh festivals. They just did a couple of days at one of the bigger theatres, and they again they invited me up to join them just for the fun of it. And I think I ended up filming it, filming the show for them from up in the gallery. Hmm. And um 
sort of slightly missing being part of it. Mm. Being part of it's not being part of their thing. Is is, is it well partly being part of that and partly being on stage. So I think at that point I started to think I'd, I'd already thought oh, maybe I should do something on my own, but I didn't really have the nerve because what I'd seen them do was so much better than most stand-ups I'd seen and yeah. different. I didn't feel like I had the, I wasn't clever enough to re, to create something as good as what they'd done. And yeah, I didn't want to be yet another stand-up. So I held back a bit and then, um, um, I've got a tangent here, so you have to remind me what you originally asked. Dot on the landscape. Uh, the, uh, but <laughs> what I'm saying is it came about because by then I, I'd actually established myself a bit as a stand-up. Mm. But it took me a while because I was, for the reason I've just said, and um, I went to see, I bumped into an old school friend somewhere who said, oh, do you remember your mate Bob Bright at school? Yes. Oh, he's doing stand-up. He's doing, should we go and see him? Yes. So we went down to Elephant Castle and saw him at one of these rather um, bleak sort of open spot nights um, and a pub in the shopping centre at Elephant Castle. And he was so sort of, you know, some of the, I'm sure you've been to some of these open spot nights. Sometimes they're not. You know, they're mainly the 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 uh, performers and perhaps their girlfriends or boyfriends or chums, and not much else. In fact, I think even some of the acts hadn't turned up. And so, because I'd done a couple of gags as the toff, I just said rather on a whim to the chap uh, who was running, and I said, "Oh, if you're a bit sure, I could do a couple of minutes if you want." He went, "Yeah, go on." And so I went and did a couple of minutes of gags, and he went, "Oh, I got like that. Yeah, I'll come well, my book next time." And so me and this chap Bob Bright went off. And did the sort of open spot circuit together, because it's quite a, it can be quite a thankless task doing it on your own. Yeah, far corners of places for not many audiences, not much of an audience, not much money, etc. And so that was again, there was more fun because I did it with him. Yeah, and we I named that, and sometimes he'd get on, sometimes I would get on. Not one of one of us wouldn't get on, but you could have a drink and enjoy it. And even if it was awful, then we'd have our company. So. um so, and then I got quite a few, in the end, I got a bit better and got a few bookings. So, yes, so a couple of years later, um, perhaps to their surprise, I, um, I'd sort of was doing all right at that, yeah. And so they, they came up with this idea for Dot on the Landscape, which was, um, I think it said in the, uh, I remember, I think I've still got the facts somewhere lying around in my archives, because <laughs> they had an office, uh, which was actually Jewel Holland's office above his, um, next to his recording studio in, East Greenwich and um, I remember seeing them and they said yeah we, we put this out to the to the uh, uh, the agent or the production company um, and it's a series of 10 minute shorts with you as a sort of uh, new struggling comedian and us as your evil Spengalis um, <laughs> and they were going to I think the idea was that I'd do it in various un- unlikely places such as a, an old, a sheltered accommodation a, a old people's home or a um a cruise ship for working men's club and that they would be like you know living in living i would be living in the back of the transit van and they would have to get somehow get a luxury hotel and all that kind of stuff and then um, and that seemed to be going somewhere you know we had i had the lunch they uh very i was quite flattered and surprised you know so they said yeah yeah we could do something and um they uh put this forward and um we got to the stage of meetings and budgets and I worked out because it was only a fairly short thing I could do it again in my time off and not, although at that point I was wondering whether I should be giving out work or not but it didn't seem to be necessary because it would have taken you know only a couple of weeks to film yeah so um, 
and you know, I think some dates were penciled in and some prices, etc. And then um, somewhere out of the blue, the BBC man changed his mind. Um, they didn't have <laughs> a great lost show. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. That's the thing, but about a lot of pilots and stuff. Well, you know, pardon the pun, but a lot of pilots and stuff. You know, they 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 never see the light of day. Unfortunately, They're, it's an idea, and it could be the best idea yeah. in the world. But you know, yeah, if it's not if it's not picked up, but I'm not bitter. <laughs> <laughs> we can tell. We can tell. Yeah. No, I mean, like I've always said, I was I'm always very, no quite seriously. I'm always being rather grateful to yeah. Oh, and um, and the fact that they went perhaps even slightly beyond that, and you know, they tried to do that for me, uh, and. And and other things, you know. So um, things don't always go according to plan. But um, yeah, but they're, but they're very loyal to their friends, aren't they? Do you know what I mean? To yeah, to keep you working with them. They obviously saw something in you as a performer. Yeah, you know. And you appeared on um, Radio Reeves of Baltimore. You did a one-off. Um, yes, on Radio One, I think it was. So yeah, I think every week a comedian had an hour. Then he had we had one, and then and Dick and Bob one week, and he. You yeah. did some, uh, you're the human joke box on there, I think. Yeah, I think that's available on the YouTube, isn't yeah. it? And John yeah. Irvin on that as well. Yes, yes, he is. I mean, uh, poem songs, and I think well, James Brown was in that one. That's right. Yeah. Uh, well, it was about the time he launched Loaded magazine, but uh, he was always a big fan of theirs. And um, well, you know, like you said, the cover of the NME, which was um, you mentioned. Yes, indeed. You mentioned going up to Edinburgh, um, and was, was it 93 or 94, I think, you went up with uh, a, a very young Matt Lucas, am I right? Yes. Yeah. Was that Bernard Chumley era? Indeed, yes. Yeah, yeah. that was when I that was my uh, when I was at my peak. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I didn't know if I was, no, I probably wasn't at my peak of performing, but I, because I, I think, looking back, I was probably not quite ready to do an Edinburgh show, because I'd actually only been doing stand-up for a couple of years. But I got invited onto a small TV show uh, on LWT, I think, and the lady that ran the uh, theatre in Edinburgh saw it and liked it. Said, oh, "I'd like to give you your show, Edinburgh." Oh, okay. And I didn't mean mm-hmm. I felt I didn't mean anything about how you do this because you know a lot of if I'd been a bit more of a jobbing comedian, you know, that's often the main topic of the conversation for six months of the year. The Edinburgh show, but I didn't really know anything about it. I knew people did it, but I didn't know how, how you did it. Didn't know how how you. I knew I'd been offered the venue and I on reasonable terms and stuff. I'm like, oh, okay. Thing is, I only do about ten minutes, twenty, fifteen, twenty at the most. These have to be an hour show. I couldn't really do it on my own. Uh, I wasn't ready for that, and so I was thinking of who to to get. And I'd met Matt um, at a at a club in Hampstead that uh, we used to do. Which seemed to again had a slightly collective feel to it, so the, the bloke that ran it sort of got um, people that he liked to put on a, a slightly more um, focused show rather than just the stand-up. So, so he got me and Matt and Barrett people to do things, and um, he seemed like the best choice. Yeah, he was, he was so young, wasn't he? When uh, about I, twenty-one, I think. Remember the Bernard yeah. Chumley character? He was you know yeah. way way beyond his years when he when he first started to well, burn, yeah, burn. playing a man of a man in his. Six trees, I suppose. Um, <laughs> and he's got a baby face anyway. Yeah, yeah. Even for his, even for his age. So, um, yeah. Yes. And he used to use the wick thing. Yes. I don't know if there's much material of him doing it. Because, of course, I, it, it seems odd to me now, looking back, that I have no footage of what we did at Edinburgh. 
Mm. Um, yeah, there must be something out there because there are always people filming and yeah, but not so much in the audio or the yeah, you have to carry a great big yeah around. You know, there wasn't camera phones and stuff. Yeah, so, then the only footage of your act on YouTube from my research is um, a comedy store. Yes, TV show. Yeah, Channel Five. That was one of the, the opening weeks of Channel Five, I think. Oh, was it? Yeah, very good. Yeah, if a little <laughs> grainy. Yeah, <laughs> I say because Matt went on to shooting stars at mm. George Dawes, but you were involved yourself when you were Dorian. Oh, I was. Well, uh, my only yeah, I was the warm up to the pilot episode of shooting oh, up. Yeah, right. I don't think Matt's in that one, is he? The pilot. I think he came. Uh, I have a feeling he wasn't in that first one. No. Right. But they they discovered him at um, this this club that we used to do in Hampstead uh, because again they were again another example of their loyalty. If you like, they mm. they used to come along even when you know when they become quite famous in their own right. So going out to things was sort of starting to become you know like even more so now. But you know they were recognised and stuff like that. So. But occasionally they'd come along to stuff that like I was doing, and uh, and 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 Matt was on there, and um, they could, they saw the uh, uh, the potential, yeah, yeah. So um, again, it's quite nice. There's a lot of um, yeah, nice little um, a lot of little coincidences, really, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I mean, did you enjoy, did you enjoy the challenge of of stand up, or was that never okay. never really never really the goal? Um. Well, I don't know whether it was a goal or not, but I de- definitely enjoyed it. Yes, mm. um, yeah, and uh, I only stopped doing it really a few years ago because um, when you're doing the sort of stand-up I did, which was very quick-fire gag, quite um, it's quite a lot of work to come up with new stuff because um, I, I tended I wasn't one of the I did, couldn't sit down with a blank sheet of paper and write jokes. Mm. I used to be stuff that was that. You know, like a, a, I don't know, a, a, a newspaper um, headline or, um, a, a, you know, a slogan on a shop or something and see some funny misunderstanding that could happen or whatever I'd come up with. But it's, it was always meant to be a, a very quick joke. I wasn't one for um, long rambling story, observational stories. So, you know, I might only come up with five seconds every couple of weeks. Yeah. So my act, and that's fine because if you going on stage uh, live and not on TV very much. Yeah. And, you know, this, hopefully the same people aren't going to see you that often, so it doesn't matter. Um, I, I think I actually got bored myself with hearing the same cags um, about six or seven years ago, and I felt that I was... Um, they probably needed a bit of refreshing, and that mm-hmm. was almost challenging as starting again. And so I just sort of um, let it go a bit, really. But you know, it, it was. Fun. I did it for about fifteen years with some success, so that's fine. I mean, so have you, have you drawn a line under that now, or is there the scope to only only in a two B pencil? <laughs> <laughs> sort of um, yes and no. I think um, occasionally people ask me to do something, and I did something at John Irwin's birthday party for yeah, yeah, uh, right. And um, um, somebody else actually about a year ago, a couple of younger comedians who I bumped into. Uh, who who knew my act because they, I must have met them uh, earlier in their careers. But I bumped rebumped rebumped into them. No, bumped into them. <laughs> That's not mangle the language. Too much. <laughs> um, well, um, they they said I want you to come and do something at this, and so I did actually in, in one week about a year ago. I did two gigs, um, but I hadn't done anything you know 
a couple of years either side. And I was, I said, I'm only going to do two minutes because I'm determined to do stuff that I've written recently rather than mm. uh, rest on my old, my old stuff. So, yeah. um, but I don't think, um, I don't have a huge desire to go and up and do 20 minutes of gag to a, you know, a, a group speak on a Saturday night. Look. No. It's good to be good to have so many strings to your bow as well. Do you know what I mean? That you can if you fancy doing some stand up, you can do that and you know, this it's nice yeah. to be I think if I was to do it again, I'd probably be self indulgent and do a one man show, but mm. something a bit gentler, maybe I, um yeah. I had an exhibition in an art gallery a couple of years ago, uh, which was basically a sort of memorabilia and and um, photographs and reminiscences of my years as a teenage playing spotter. Mm. Uh, um, some people suggested not only that I should write a book about it, but I should also do a live show. Three and a half years later, I haven't done it, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's still in the back of my head. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Sounds like a plan. I will. Oh, but there's, yeah. scope, there's scope for everything these days, isn't there? You, you know, you hear all these stories about, you know, even like train spotting is, has become... Yeah. Huge again. These guys are gone. Oh yeah, go pro, go pro. Yes, yeah, I know. There's that. That what's his name? Beaujolais, the chap. Yeah, yeah. it is huge. It's you know. It's, yeah, it's well, I new... think that I, I might have left it too long now. Because no, you should be you should be jumping way. on the jumping on the plane aspect. I think Dorian, you know. <laughs> Do you still fly, Dorian? Are you a qualified yeah. pilot? Occasionally, yes. Not not that often. You know, just only for leisure. You know, like a little plane. Well, when funnily enough, when. Going back to the to, uh, the show that me and Matt did, Matt Lucas did at the um, Edinburgh Festival, um, I f we flew down to. I actually, he was at he'd been at Bristol University at the time. I think he took a year out to do his performing, and uh, the music that we wanted in the show was being done by uh, an old colleague of his at uh, Bristol University, mm -hmm. and uh, Mr. Atac, and um, we. Said we'd need to go down to see him and you know have a chat and sort out the music. And I said, well, "Why don't we fly down?" He went, "Oh, okay, yeah." So, um, <laughs> so I rented a plane from Biggin Hill and we flew down uh, to Bristol. I mean, it's a lot easier to get a train, really. But you know, I thought we might as well. I think it was like, you know, <laughs> yeah. And but uh, we followed the M4, <laughs> um, very good landmark. And uh, I left Matt in charge of the map and. Uh, which at one point was slightly. <laughs> it always happens when you're flying. You always end up somewhere on the fold of the map. This is before GPS, of course. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he, so he, I said, can you unfold the map? And Bristol hit. And he opened it up and it covered the whole window. <laughs> I to see where I was going. But nothing bad happened. So where, where did you end up landing? <laughs> where did you land? Uh, Filton. Oh, yeah, no, we, we did land near Bristol. I mean, it was exactly where we intended to. The map in the window was only a brief. <laughs> I'll make my opinion, you know. I've got this vision of Matt parachuting. Doing a James Bond and parachuting out of this plane, you know. Back in the days when comedy was the new rock and roll, Vic and Bob really should have had a victory big night out private jet, Led Zeppelin style, with you flying around the country. Yeah, yeah, gig yeah. To gig. Yeah. Has Jim and Bob ever been up with you in the plane? Yes, they did once, I seem to remember. Yeah. yeah. Don't know why I needed to know that. <laughs> <laughs> We're covering all the facts. We want to cover, we want to cover all the bases. You are the cool one. Don't we ask all the questions? I will ask the question. 
Tori, this has been thanks for joining us today. It's been absolutely, absolutely fantastic to hear your stories. They really were quite a boast. <laughs> thanks so much, Dorian. Okay, that was excellent. Thank you. Right, it's been good fun. Thank you very much. Thank you all for listening to this edition of Quite a Boast. Special thanks to Matt Lucas for permission to use the Peanuts music as our theme tune, and thanks to Ed Lewis for this edit. Thank you to Jake Chesson for permission to use the photo from his 1995 shoot of Jim and Bob in our various online locations for the podcast. And of course, thank you very much to Jim Moyer and Bob Mortimer, without whom this podcast, well, it just wouldn't exist, would it? Remember to check out Paula's Divine Comedians podcast as well and to join the Reza Mortimer Depository of Curious Stuff Facebook group. And I think you'll agree that really was a lot of fun. Goodbye.